0: Welcome to Hope Midtown. My name is Jordan. I'm on the staff team here and uh, so glad to be with you here today on this Sunday. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the church calendar, last week was Easter and it's kind of this big hurrah, huzzah of things to do. And this uh, immediate Sunday after Easter in the church calendar is sometimes called Low Sunday. It's called Low Sunday because uh, Easter is this time of high energy excitement. We all kind of, there's this national, global kind of energy around it. But we run into a bit of a conservation of energy problem, right? Uh, What comes up must come down. And uh, oftentimes, Low Sunday is a little bit of like, we've kind of expended all our energy. We've spent time with family. We kind of just need a break. So if you've made it here today, Congratulations. You did it. You managed your energy. I'm so glad you were able to join. If you're here, it also means you probably filed your taxes. So good job on being responsible. You're not scrambling, looking for your W-2s or your 1099s. You've, you've got it. And I, if you haven't done your taxes, please hurry up. Please do it. Uh, we're running out of time. But uh, really, really grateful uh, to be here with you today. As, we have, uh, as we're in this Easter season We've started this new series on the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, uh, and the book of Nehemiah is the final historical narrative in the Old Testament. And so far in the story of the Old Testament, we get, this, we get this kind of narrative of God's people establishing a nation of their own, establishing a land of their own after years of being enslaved in Egypt. But what happens is after internal turmoil, after forgetting what God had done for them, they've entered this period of exile. Kind of, There's been this revolving door of conquerors that have, that have come to Jerusalem, that have come to Israel and ransacked the city, ransacked the land. And what has happened was the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, were actually taken out of their homeland and brought to a foreign country to serve. They were, they were, they've lost their home, they've lost their cultural nexus, their, the, the place that grounded their spiritual and religious identity, and uh, they were taken by the Babylonians, now ruled by the Persians, and in the book of Nehemiah, we're actually picking up on a story of, of a continued process of returning to Jerusalem. Actually, the book of Nehemiah is the third return back to to Jerusalem after this exile and it's the story of this Persian official Nehemiah who's originally ethnically Jewish but but has been living in Persia most likely for his whole life and we pick up on this story here so as we enter into this series the series that is all going to be about renewal and what that looks like today in Nehemiah 1 we are at the starting line so as we, exp- as we think about what it means to begin this process of renewal, begin this process of bringing wholeness to what is broken, to bring connection to what is disconnected, bringing goodness to what is unjust and wrong, both personally and systemically, would you pray with me as we look into this text today? Lord, the God of heaven, we look to you, to your power, to your voice, to know what you invite us to and what you call us to. Lord, as we explore this text today, as we consider what it means to be a people that are being renewed and that are renewing the world around us, would you let our ears be attentive to you? And whatever is in this text, whatever is in this word that you want to elevate, would you elevate it? Whatever you need to quiet, would you quiet? So Lord, today as, uh, as we hear this text spoken, would you let my words be few so your voice can be heard? In your name we pray. Amen. So let's see how this book picks up. Uh, we'll start in verse 2 and 3. It, says, it starts like this. So uh, Nehemiah is being visited by some of his family that have returned back to Jerusalem. They come back to Persia to, to see Nehemiah, and this is what they say to him. This is what it says. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. We notice that Nehemiah's first curiosity, his first question, the subject that he is most interested in, is what is the fate of this community of people that have returned to Jerusalem? See, in a lot of the books that are written about Nehemiah, a lot of the commentaries, a lot of the ways that we think about Nehemiah is we kind of elevate him as this like visionary leader, that he has this dream of the future, of what is possible. And it's, it's this abstract idea of like Jerusalem coming back up. He's building this really beautiful city. He's, he's restoring Jerusalem to its flo- former glory. And it's, it's often living in this kind of like abstract reality of a future. And yes... Nehemiah as a leader is believing in what is possible and is believing in this abstract uh, future of what can happen. But what I love about what Nehemiah is primarily concerned here with, his first interest, his first curiosity is what, what has happened to the people. See, Nehemiah's vision for renewal, vision of bringing what is broken to wholeness, is not some abstract idea. It's not focused on some ideals that are here and out there, but are grounded in the real needs and the real welfare of people. And I think for us, it's very easy to get caught in kind of ideal thinking and and thinking about a future that is kind of far away. But for Nehemiah, and I think for God's heart as well, there's a grounding in a deep love, concern, and care. Not for an abstract community of people, but for real people that he knows and he understands. So as we think about renewal. I think our first invitation is to ground it in real relationships, in real communities that we seek to love and care and, 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 and put our concern for. See, Jerusalem is the second thought. Jerusalem is important. The walls are important, yes. Because without walls, a city in this time would be prone to all kinds of, of insecurity and a lack of safety. They, they would be open to bandit attacks. They'd be open to all kinds of national insecurity. But his concern is first with the people. And just for, for us today, I think the same invitation is true, that our first concern, is with people. I think that's why in the scriptures, in the book of 1 John, it says that who can say that they love God if they, if they ignore their brother in need, they ignore their sister in need. Our love for God, our, our vision for renewal, our, our vision for loving this world is always grounded first in loving people, and loving those around us, and loving our neighbors, So here, after after Nehemiah gets this news of the condition of the people, of the welfare of the people, let's pay attention to his response. This is what it says, picking up in verse 4. When I heard these things, when I heard these things about the state of the people of Jerusalem who had returned back, the way they were living, I sat down and wept. I sat down and wept, for some days I mourned and fasted, and prayed before the God of heaven. He sat down and wept, he mourned and he fasted, and he prayed. This is the immediate response of Nehemiah. See, in today's world, we are often very action-oriented. We're often very thinking about, okay, we immediately get into action. How can we accelerate? Every college campus, I feel like, in New York City right now has a startup accelerator. How quickly can we build a company? How quickly can we get to a valuation of $1 million? It's It's about speed. Leaders, we often think about that kind of like firehouse leadership, right? The alarm rings, and what do we do? We jump down that pole, we jump into the fire truck, and we get to the need. And yet... It's a striking image that we get in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah hears this news of the needs of the people, of the distress that they experience, and he sits down. He sits down and he grieves and mourns about the condition of the people. It can feel irresponsible right a leader a uh, uh, someone who might have the means to solve a situation Sitting down and not jumping into action? You know what's even crazier about this is, uh, you might have remembered, in verse 1, it told us that the month that this event occurred, that this conversation happened, was the month of Kislev, right? In Nehemiah 2, when the story picks up again, and when we actually see Nehemiah's first actions into, like, going into this work of returning to Jerusalem, it tells us that, that that's the month of Nisan. This is a four-month period Nehemiah 1 takes place in a period of time of four months. Four months of grieving. Four months of mourning, of entering into, of realizing the welfare, the suffering, the issues of these people. He isn't in a rush to avoid the negative feelings, the 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 dissatisfaction, the grief of the situation they're in. And I think for us, you know, in our workplaces, what, we get one week bereavement? That the, That's the classic, that's kind of the normal offering, but the vision of Nehemiah's act of renewal actually starts from a place of grief. If we were really committed to, like, living this out, we'd preach Nehemiah one for four months. We'd, we'd kind of be in this period for four months but i actually think it's nehemiah's deceleration he doesn't accelerate into activity he doesn't accelerate into movement and change but he allows himself to be slowed down by grief by mourning and by weeping our lives in the city are so fast we're constantly on the move. We're constantly trying to move our careers, take the next step, try to find the next place to live. But Nehemiah paints a very different vision of what life, of what renewal looks like. It's slow. It makes space for grief and for waiting. And Like I said, this feels irresponsible. It feels, if Nehemiah can do something, why isn't he doing something? But what I think grief does for Nehemiah in this moment, it allows him to really experience and enter into the pain of the people that he looks to serve, of the people that he wants to join and help bring wholeness to their, to their situation. It makes his work of renewal, it makes his next steps, not out of ambition, not out of a need to control or manage or fix every situation in the world, But this deceleration to make space for grief, I think, warms his heart. I think it warms his heart to the people around him. Because we all know that when we live our lives fast, when we are always on the move, when we do not have the time to slow down for things like this, it's easy to become cold. It's easy to become cold to the realities around us, to the suffering we see in the world. But Nehemiah teaches us that slowing down, allowing ourselves to fully feel the grief. I think it brings the love and heart of God to focus so that we can go into the world to seek renewal, to see both personal and systemic renewal, not out of a place of anxiety, not out of a place of fear, but of trust in God. And this is the prayer then that we see Nehemiah be formed in. We we see that his heart is breaking, that he is weeping. And this is what it says. I I mean, this is what I think we're invited to consider. My question for us today, church, is who are you weeping for? As you look in the world around you, as you look in the communities that you get to to be a part of, the the workplaces you're in, the schools you teach at, the, the hospitals you might work, the neighborhoods and buildings you live in, where is your heart breaking? What are the situations you see around you that you, you feel that God just needs to touch it? That God's love needs to reach? And I think secondly, the question that I want to ask is, yeah, with the pace of life we have, you know, in the story of the Good Samaritan in the Gospels, part of the issue is that uh, the two people that ignored the wounded man on the road had a place to go. They they just had a place to go. They were busy. They needed to get somewhere. And they didn't have time to be distracted by other people's suffering. And it's easy. It's easy to feel like it's just too overwhelming to enter into someone else's suffering. It's too overwhelming to to really allow ourselves to be exposed to other people's brokenness. What's so powerful about this example of Nehemiah is that he is someone who allows himself to be overwhelmed. That allows himself to really feel the grief of other people, of his community. So, both of these questions I want us to consider. Who are we weeping for? And who might we not be allowing ourselves to not grieve for, to not weep for, as we consider? So, as we enter into his prayer, I want us to think about those two things, because here is how Nehemiah then continues to pray in verses five. This is how he opens his prayer. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Notice that Nehemiah's first words out of his mouth are about the character of God. See, I think actually allowing himself to be overwhelmed in grief for those pe- this period of time actually opens himself up. This slowing down opens himself up to see God for who he truly is the great and awesome God, the God of heaven, Lord Almighty. When we're so quick to move, when we're so quick to spur into action, of course our focus will be completely on the situation and completely on our own capabilities and abilities to to solve, fix, and control the situation. But I think this slowing down allows Nehemiah to have his eyes fixed on the character and capacity of God the only thing that I can think can meet our level of of brokenness, our levels of grief, our levels of just being overwhelmed by the suffering we see in the world. The thing that can rise to the occasion to meet that is the immensity of God's love. Last week we celebrated Easter, and Easter is this reminder of the love of God to lay down his life for our sake. It's also this reminder of the power of God to raise the dead back to life. This slowed down starting line. Nehemiah does not jump to action as the gun goes off for the race. He doesn't run, doesn't run immediately. He stops. He sits down at the starting line. And I think it's because that he has allowed his heart to trust fully in God for renewal. It's not this ambitious project. It's not this anxious need to control and change and fix everything. But it's this tuned heart to God. His heart is in tune with God's view of people's suffering, of people's needs. He's filled with love. He's filled with trust. And because of that, he can pray this bold prayer. He also names God as someone who keeps his covenant of love with those that love him. Notice that the first thing that, that, that Nehemiah attributes to God is his promise-keeping. Again, God is not this abstract person, abstract figure that is impossible to understand, but, but he is also grounded in relational love. Just as Nehemiah is grounded in his love and concern for people, Nehemiah identifies God as someone who is grounded in relationship with us with us and his people, and that's why he can call on him. And notice what Nehemiah does next in, in, in the continuing verses. He actually gives this confession, and this is what he says. I confess, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws. It's so easy. I think it's, it's human nature, of course, when we see a problem, when we see a situation that needs changing, to immediately try to figure out, OK, who's at fault? Who, who do we need to get to stop this thing? It makes sense. We look at the systems of our world of an incarceration system that disproportionately affects black and brown bodies in this country. And we want to figure out whose fault is it? Because if we can stop them, we can stop the system. We look at a planet that is perpetually heating up because of constant pollution, because of, because of fuel systems that just don't work for the whole planet. And we're trying to figure out whose fault is it? Who can we stop? And I want to be very clear. Nehemiah does not pretend like there's no fault to go around. He doesn't try to diminish the wrongdoing in the world. He doesn't try to diminish the fact that people have done things wrong. But notice, in this confession... There's no they. There's no us and them. In the kingdom of God, we are invited to this mentality that there is no longer an us and them, but there is an us and God. That every single them that we put outside of our circle is now included into the family of God. And we are invited into solidarity. Even with those uh, we hold things against. Even those who might have perpetuated the systems of injustice, of wrongdoing, both personal and in the world around us. This is maybe the hardest message of the gospel. That forgiveness is for everyone. That reconciliation and renewal is for everyone. On the cross, when Jesus gave his life for the world... He gave it for his enemies. And it is the heart of the gospel to forgive, to love, and to even bless our enemies. To bless the people that we would name as them. To bless the people that are maybe at fault for the situation we're in. It's inviting us to expand our us so that we would seek the good of even those that we might exclude. Let's notice what Nehemiah then prays next in the following verses. It says this, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled, exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there. There's something that's actually very cool that's happening here Uh, in this part of the scripture in this part of the prayer nehemiah is actually quoting the torah he's quoting the book of deuteronomy and the book of leviticus and he's praying these scriptures to god he's he's quoting god back to god and there's a question of here that what's happening why see i think what nehemiah is doing is he has this vision about what is happening in the world And in a world that feels out of control, a situation that seems hopeless, he is able to identify that God is in control. And that even this current situation, no matter how bleak it feels, God is the one who is working and moving even through an impossible situation. See, I think this is why scripture is this deep gift to us as people who want to understand and know God. Uh, when I was growing up, I used to play a lot of trading card games, like Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! Like, and it, the way that these games work is, right, you, you draw a card, and you try to use it. You use it immediately. You put a trap card down. It's like kind of uno, like uno reverse. Immediately try to use it and do something. And, and what I think sometimes we can do with scripture is think about it like that. Think about it as like a deck of cards or as like a spell book, right? Of like, we're going to get some verses, we're going to get some ideas in scripture and then like put them into action. Use them to change a situation. Use them to fix something. But I think when we do that, we actually miss out on something much more powerful and much more transformative. Nehemiah in this passage uses his immersion in scripture To identify the activity of God in the world. Scripture, being immersed in the the works of what God has done, getting these stories of how God has moved and acted in the past, it actually gives us eyes to see how God is moving now. It gives us the ability to identify, it's like we're learning the dance moves. We see how God has moved before. We see the rhythms of renewal and of work, and we now can enter into that dance because we've seen it before. Nehemiah knows the rhythms, and he's able to get into step with God to join him in this work of renewal. So he is not hopeless. He is not despondent. He is not fearful because he knows God is at work because he's seen God at work in the scriptures and in his own life. Being immersed in the scriptures gives us faith to know that God is able to do much more than we can ask or imagine. And I think it's why in these times that we are asking for renewal, in these times that we are mourning and grieving the realities around us, scripture and the stories of what God has done for us acts as this anchor for us, this anchor for hope as we see God's activity revealed to us. We'll see, finally, how Nehemiah ends his uh, his prayer. And this is what he says. He says, they are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. He again identifies God's activity in the world. But I really love how Nehemiah ends this passage. He says, I was the cupbearer to the king. It's a, it's a little bit of like a little fact. He just kind of throws his resume in there at the very end. But, you know, what's, what's important to understand about cupbearers is they're, they're a fairly important position. Uh, it's like a, a, Actually, it's like a national security issue. There was, there was poisonings during this time. Food could have been tampered with or affected to kind of assassinate and kill kings. So cupbearers were actually like, like a front line of defense for the king so it's highly influential it also means he got a lot of face to face activity with the king so he is this kind of this fly on the wall advisor to the persian king in this moment and yet despite being this cupbearer position this is a kind of like it's an influential position it's it's definitely an important position but it's not necessarily all that powerful he probably managed the staff, but it was like a kitchen staff. And he probably made some, some commands here and there, but it was about food. He didn't really have probably that much political decision-making of power. And this cup-bearer position that he tells us at the end, it feels small. It feels kind of inconsequential in the grand scheme of things and the needs that are before them. I think many of us probably feel the same way. As we, as we look at the structures and systems which need wholeness, the communities that need the transforming power of God's love, we can look at our positions. I've only been at this company for two years. I've just started my career. I'm a, I'm a first-year attending. I'm a first-year analyst. I, I just, I'm, in, I'm, I'm at the entry-level job. Wherever you are in that kind of hierarchy of things, it can always feel too small. And what I love about Nehemiah's passage is there's this contrast happening here of I was cupbearer to the king, but you, you God, have redeemed people by your great strength and your mighty hand. Nehemiah does not allow his vision of what is possible in the world to be limited by his positional authority. He does not, you know, kick the ball down saying, when I get a little bit more power, when I get a little bit more position, when I'm a little further in my career, then I'll do something about it. He has this sense that God is able and willing to do more. It's why I think the Easter season is so important because the story of God raising Jesus back to life is this anchor. The empty tomb is the birthplace of all hope. It is the birthplace of every possibility of what God is able to do in the world around us. And it's because of that that we can believe that God can do something through us more than we can ask or imagine. And we're invited to enter into that as well. Nehemiah is not limited by himself, but his imagination has been expanded because of his view on God, his willingness to slow down, and his heart for the communities around him. As we enter into a time of response, I'm going to invite our worship team back on. And... uh, I'm going to do something a little annoying for us. I'm actually going to spoil the Book of Nehemiah for you now. I'm going to to jump ahead. This is this is supposed to be saved for weeks in in advance, but I'm going to spoil it. And what happens in the Book of Nehemiah is they are victorious. They actually rebuild the walls. There's safety in the city. They start a system of a a bit of a system of self-governance once again. But in the final book of Nehemiah, it kind of ends on this very like middling note. And we're very uncertain of what will happen. We hear stories of injustice happening in the city, that the the Jerusalem nobility is starting to, like, is uh, starting to oppress the poor in the city. They're forcing them to work on the Sabbath. Uh, it, it, there are these stories of like injustice. And, and even the priest, we hear stories in the final chapter of Nehemiah, of, of the priests are starting to, like, no longer follow the laws of Moses. And it's kind of... It's this like balancing act of like, are we about to fall over again? Is the cycle about to repeat? After all this work of renewal, was it all for naught? And what's dark about this situation is that 400 years later, another oppressive regime will walk into Jerusalem. The Roman government will take over Israel, will take over this, this place, and once again, Jerusalem will fall. And like the people of Israel, like the Jewish community that have experienced this, there can be this sense that it's all pointless, that we'll take one step forward and two steps back. But what's powerful about the book of Nehemiah is that we are actually promised a better Nehemiah. 400 years after the events of Nehemiah, God answers these cycles of oppression, these cycles of injustice, these cycles of brokenness with his son. To a Roman-occupied Jerusalem, God sent his only son to die on a cross for the sake of his people. In the Gospels, Jesus actually cries for Jerusalem as well, just like Nehemiah. Uh, we see in the, in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke, Jesus looking at Jerusalem and weeping for its injustice, weeping for, for everything that it's, it's, it's struggling with, both its systemic oppression and people's personal disconnection from God. Jesus enters into the story of Nehemiah and acts as this better and perfect Nehemiah weeping for his community, weeping for us and the suffering that we face, the brokenness we experience. God,